Hi everyone, Leah Hexton here. Looking forward to talking about rewinding reactivation, a deep dive into the viral infections from the herpes viridacea family. April 13th, please go to www.bioceuticals.com.au for more information. Hi, and welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based, integrative, functional, and complementary medicine. I'm Dr. Adrian Lepresti, and joining us today is academic researcher, Dr. Sinan Ali. Sinan's research in the area of stress physiology and hormone analysis has been widely published. He's the Associate Dean of the Australasian College of Health and Wellness, and founder of My Hormones and Me, and Southpath Functional Pathology, which provide hormone analysis to university researchers, integrative medicine practitioners, and aesthetics clinics. All right, we're very excited to have you here today, uh, Simon, and welcome to FX Medicine. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, Well, thank you very much, Adrian, and I am excited to be here, and thank you for this opportunity to have a chat, all things things measurement with you. Yeah, absolutely. So today we're going to be discussing what the different testing options are for pathology testing in, in mental health conditions as well as different biomarkers that we can look for in terms of our, uh, guiding us with regards to assessments and treatments. So um, hopefully we'll be able to provide some, some useful information for our, our listeners today. But first thing, I suppose what I wanted to do first on, and I just talk a bit about how testing can be used to complement some of the work that practitioners are doing. So typically, I know that um, assessments primarily done through assessments of symptoms, you know, as a, as a practitioner myself and, and other practitioners, I know that what we generally do is when we see somebody with depression or anxiety, we'll ask about their symptoms. Many psych, uh, psychologists and psychiatrists, for example, will use the DSM-5 to help them come up with a diagnosis. But obviously, uh, you know, one thing that is available to us is the testing and, and, and using testing to help us guide us with regards to, to treatment and so forth. Can you tell us a little bit how testing can be used to complement some of the traditional interviews and, and diagnostic assessments that we do? Yeah, I think, you know, from a testing point of view, testing is very important in order to to help to inform your clinical uh, opinions. However, you know, I'll, I'll put a caveat right in there in that testing is not there to replace what you do as a clinician. So it's simply there, mm-hmm. uh, simply there to guide you to help along. Having said that, the testing can, in some instances, and I've had some personal experience with this, not in the mental uh, health realm, but um, mm-hmm. testing can be helpful in that it does bring up issues that have not been diagnosed uh, clinically for one reason or another, largely because the client does not mention them, does not think them uh, to be important enough. But, you know, we've seen hormonal measurements in some people that go right against what the client was there to see their, you know, naturopath with, for example. 
that we've been able to shed some further light. But certainly the testing is not there to replace what is happening, you know, in the clinic world, but to inform, to help along, to guide, to provide some numbers perhaps that could be mm-hmm. that could be useful. In terms of mental health, there's not a lot of functional pathology testing that informs mental health. We know that hormone imbalances have negative impacts for a lot of people in the physical and the mental uh, health arena. So hormone imbalances can influence anxiety and tiredness and irritability, weight fluctuations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Many disease conditions are multifactorial. So in many cases, you know, there's not a single biomarker that you could look for to inform or to determine the treatment. And there are many, many different conditions that can affect the level of a single biomarker. So, you know, where do you go from that? I mean, we know that low cortisol can be caused from uh, PTSD and chronic fatigue syndrome, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a matter of, you know, take your, you know, take, take a pick, as it were. Also, when these biomarkers change, are they the cause of a particular type of condition, a particular type of illness, or do they result from that illness? And, you know, we can talk about adrenal fatigue, you know, as an example of that, but I'll I'll leave that there for a somewhat quick answer. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, certainly I think that's a thing, you know, there's been... I mean, in terms of a diagnosis, there's you know, obviously there's there's more and more research to look at different biomarkers and see whether people with depression or anxiety um, have elevated or, or, or disturbances in, in different biomarkers. But at the moment, uh, in terms of an assessment or a diagnosis, we really um, have to rely on our assessments, uh, our interview, the use of questionnaires to diagnose somebody with depression or anxiety and certainly the research is as you mentioned you know research is showing and we're guided by the research that you know maybe there's some imbalances in some of them but um, but there isn't a biomarker there that all people with depression or all people with anxiety and correct me if I'm wrong that uh, if you have an elevated level of cortisol for example I mean or low cortisol um, not everybody with depression or anxiety has elevated cortisol or low cortisol or low cortisol do they? Uh, absolutely. There are many, many different conditions that will cause an increase in cortisol or that will cause a decrease in the level of cortisol. So you can't pinpoint it to a depressive state. You can't pinpoint, even if you had you know, a biomarker X that, yep. that was up or down, in depression, then, you know, there, there are many, many different forms of, of what we generally classify as depression. And, you know, you, that's your area of expertise, not mine. But, um, you know, they have not been dissected out in terms of different classifications of depression. And these are the biomarker changes that you would see in each one of them. So I guess we're at the the early stages for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's certainly a lot of research done in the area, but to bring that to the clinical world is going to take some more time and a little bit more understanding at this point in time. But, you know, are there markers that we could look for? There certainly are markers that we could look for. 
And in major depressive uh, states, major depression, MDD, there's certainly markers like BDNF, and we know that decreased BDNF leads to the pathophysiology of major depressive disorder. And, you know, that's possibly due to increased cortisol levels and increased glucocorticoid activation in the hippocampus, which has, you know, structural effects on the hippocampus, atrophy and the like, and that can lead to a decrease in BDNF. So certainly we could measure BDNF and we do measure BDNF, not as a routine, but we do a lot of work in measuring BDNF for researchers, we could certainly, you know, transfer that to the clinical world and start measuring salivary BDNF. But then when you start measuring salivary BDNF, is that BDNF of hippocampal origin? Because most of the research shows, you know, a decrease in hippocampal BDNF. So if we measure salivary BDNF, do we know its origin? Is it coming from the hippocampus? Is it coming from, you know, the peripheral uh, cellular regions? Does BDNF cross the blood-brain barrier at all? We don't know the answer to those sorts of questions. And BDNF changes are also there in other psychotic disorders. And, you know, getting back to the age-old question, is it the cause or the result of? Can you just tell us what BDNF is? Uh, brain-derived naturopathic factor, which, uh, which is involved in neuronal function, neurogenesis and the yeah. like. So the more BDNF you have, the better neuronal function you're likely to have. So okay. the less uh, naturopathic factor uh, decreases uh, in major depressive disorder. Yeah. Yep. Uh, okay. But BDNF's not the only one. There's others that could be measured that are measured quite routinely in um, uh, in the research world. Mm-hmm. Uh, various cytokines, in particular the inflammatory cytokines, interleukin-6, interleukin-1, TNF-alpha. There's the anti-inflammatory cytokines, interleukin-4, 10, and 13, that are measured. So you're looking for a balance between these inflammatory and pro-inflammatory cytokines together with CRP, which is your measure of inflammation, systemic inflammation. And there's correlations in depressive states with various changes in the concentration of these cytokines. And we know that these cytokines uh, can cross the blood-brain barrier and have an effect on the brain. So it has effects on, you know, glutamate and monoamine transmission. So things like your serotonin, norepinephrine, epinephrine. So you get less serotonin in the brain, has effects on synaptic remodeling. It has various effects on neurogenesis and so forth and so on. And all of these, of course, mm-hmm. have behavioral uh, responses, behavioral effects. So cytokines is one of those areas that is very, very heavily studied in research. 
So you've mentioned mm-hmm. that the obviously we know that there's a link, there's a relationship between inflammation and depression. So you've mentioned that you know measuring CRP, uh, you've got the different cytokines, the pro-inflammatory and the anti-inflammatory cytokines, and maybe looking at the balance between that. You've mentioned uh, brain-derived neurotrophic factor or BDNF, which um, yep. then may be important around neuroplasticity. You were about to mention something else. What was that? Uh, I mean, the story goes on and on. <laughs> yeah. There's even some research around oxytocin too, isn't there? Uh, there's research around oxytocin. There's research around, you know, uh, corticotrophin-releasing hormone from the hypothalamus, CRH, uh, from the pituitary, there's vasopressin or antidiuretic hormone. Mm-hmm. These are all, you know, potential markers and exciting new potential markers, um, you know, oxidative stress markers. So obviously, you know, you can look at generation of free radicals. You can look mm-hmm. at the antioxidant uh, uh, potential in the body. You wow. can look at uh, an exciting new one, which is uh, a product of lipid peroxidation, which is melondialdehyde. MD, which is uh, now starting to, you know, gain traction as a reliable marker for um, for major depressive disorder. You know, you can look at various other biomarkers, um, superoxide dismutase, uh, again, part of the oxidative process that's been looked at. You know, it increases in serum with major depressive disorder, some more reliable, some of these biomarkers are more reliable than others. And I think a mark of whether they are reliable or not is to see whether they consistently change back to, you know, what is thought to be their uh, native levels, original levels with antidepressant treatments or uh, any other form of treatment that resolves depression. Do some of these biomarkers actually change? And yep. that, by and large, has been in the research world being used to determine whether they are good candidates as biomarkers or not. But yeah, I think, you know, things like BDNF, I think CRP, interleukin 6. And melondialdehyde are likely to be candidates that would be used by even functional pathologies in the future. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we've got then obviously your inflammatory markers, your oxidative stress markers that you've mentioned there, um, and then obviously uh, your BDNF, your, your neurotrophic factors there. And then obviously the one that's commonly uh, people probably a bit more aware of is cortisol too. That would be another option for people, wouldn't it? Uh, absolutely. Cortisol is pretty much um, at the centre of, of all of the testing. Uh, mm-hmm. I would uh, put my house on, um, you know, that cortisol is probably the most widely uh, used marker uh, yeah. coming out of functional pathology. What about um, neurotransmitters? Can you test neurotransmitters through blood or urine or, or whatever? Um, neurotransmitters can certainly be tested in blood. Uh, you can look at the metabolic products in urine. They can certainly be done. But there are questions of the reliability because when you're looking at neurotransmitters in terms of mental health, they are in the central nervous system. And where they are used 
is in the central nervous system. So how do we get access to these neurotransmitters that are in the central nervous system by measuring blood? Yes, some of those neurotransmitters do end up in the circulation, but we have to think about if we are measuring neurotransmitters such as norepinephrine or epinephrine, we really need to think about their major source, and the major source is the adrenal medulla because the medullary cells of the adrenal gland are modified post-ganglionic neurons, and that's why they're capable of producing classical neurotransmitters that circulate in blood and have major effects. So when you think of the flight-fight response in stress, the flight-fight response is a result of that those neurotransmitters that are circulating that are of adrenal medulla origin rather than central nervous system origin. Yes, there are other neurotransmitters such as serotonin, uh, etc., that you know, that are mainly in the central nervous system. Yes, they are also found in the blood, but comes a question of their origin because, you know, the medulla can also produce serotonin. And Mm -hmm. if you really want to take the story a little bit further, we've got to think of the, the largest organ in the body. And the largest organ in the body is obviously the skin. And we know that the skin is a receptor, so it responds to many of the hormones. It responds to neurotransmitters. But, you know, 15 years ago, 18 years ago or so, we discovered that the skin is also capable of producing hormones and producing neurotransmitters. Now... We presume that a lot of those actions are local, but having said that, there is uh, very little stopping those hormones, very little stopping those neurotransmitters that are produced in the largest organ of the body from ending up in the systemic Mm -hmm. circulation. So there's an additional sort of level of complexity that comes into the system, which is the origin. So when I'm measuring anything in any fluid, in any part of the body, I really need to question what is the origin of the the biomarker that I'm mm-hmm. that I'm measuring. What what is it likely to be the most? And you know the. The functional pathology arena is full of examples of, you know, measuring hormones in saliva, measuring hormones in blood, and you get elevated hormones in one fluid such as saliva, but not in another. So if you're taking topical hormones, for example, topical progesterone, topical estradiol, testosterone, you will be able to measure a high concentration of them as they cross through the skin and end up in saliva. Mm-hmm. But if you measure their, their blood concentration, you don't see an increase in any of these hormones. So, you know, clinician needs to understand this. We as researchers, we as, we as a laboratory need to understand this so that we're yeah. not overdosing patients on things like topical hormones because if you measure it in blood, you really need to overdose quite significantly in order to get sufficient concentrations that end up in blood. But you see it in saliva. Worse still, you see very high concentrations of these topical hormones in a medium that we do a lot of measures on, which is in hair. 
and the, the source of where these hormones are coming from. I certainly want to discuss the different um, options for taking saliva samples, so uh, I'll, I will certainly go back to that. So, so just with then what you've mentioned there, obviously there's all these different markers that we can test for, but as practitioners and as, as researchers, we also need to question, well, you know, you can measure different neurotransmitters or metabolites of neurotransmitters, but is it actually a reflection of what's going on in the central nervous system? So I suppose if you want to measure... Uh, neurotransmitters you've actually got to try to get into the brain or get into, or use spinal fluid or things like you know measure concentrations in spinal fluid that would probably more accurately predict neurotransmitter concentrations would that be right uh, absolutely so if you're mm-hmm. measuring um, concentrations in the spinal fluid then that would be much uh, a much greater sort of accurate because you know you're confined to what's happening in the central nervous system there yeah. um, but you know okay. that- not a test that's going to be widely used outside yeah, of no. in an emergency type department. So. <laughs> exactly. Now, what about, um, so you've mentioned some with depression. Um, I suspect a lot of those markers would be, uh, you could potentially use for somebody who's experiencing stress or anxiety. Uh, what about, if, if somebody was suffering from insomnia or sleep disturbances, is there any particular markers there that people could look at? In terms of sleep, there really isn't a lot there. A couple of the hormones that immediately spring to mind, obviously, with sleep is melatonin and is cortisol. But when we talk about sleep, I mean, there's there's different types of sleep problems from acute yeah. sleep to chronic sleep deficits to, you know, obstructive sleep apnea, circadian disruptions. And I think when we generally think about sleep problems, we generally think of circadian disruptions. So, you know, people not getting a restful sleep, people waking up, uh, people can wake up from obstructive sleep apnea, for example. Now, You know, they're very, very hard to diagnose outside of the clinical uh, situation. Uh, As a biomarker, we can look at melatonin. As a biomarker, we can look at cortisol. And both of these have quite distinct circadian patterns where we know when the peak should start, we know when the peak should peak, and we know at what rate roughly those uh, peaks decline and what their levels are throughout you know, the 24 hours. So we can measure both of those. We can measure cortisol at irregular intervals. We can measure melatonin at regular intervals to determine whether there are circadian disruptions there, whether they are there are shifts in the peak. So, for example, if you look at cortisol, then, you know, we all should be peaking somewhere around when the sun rises and within sort of half an hour on either side of that. But certainly, you know, when you wake up half an hour post-waking, you should have your maximum cortisol level. Now, if you look at individuals who are shift workers, so rather than getting up as we normally do at at sunup to start our day, they are sleeping through that period and they are working at night time. So you're looking at a, you know, roughly a 12-hour shift in their level of activity 
And when you measure the circadian pattern in cortisol of these people, what you generally find is that rather than having a circadian pattern that is tied in to the day-night cycle, the light cycle, that shifts towards the right two to three hours. So they'll actually oh, yeah. shift um, in, in um, well, in Australia, in Sydney at the moment, it would be somewhere around 7 uh, to 7.30 in the morning. But if you're a night shift worker and consistently working, I'm not just talking about doing a couple of shifts here, a couple of shifts there. Yeah. Take some time for the circadian pattern to actually move. Um, as you would experience when you, you know, have jet lag about three, four days quite significantly and about seven, eight days to totally get over jet lag, um, there's a shift from sort of seven o'clock to somewhere around nine to ten o'clock is the, the shift of their cortisol peak. Okay. So okay. if we can measure those shifts in circadian pattern, and, you know, that would be some indication of sleep disturbances that people might be having. As a biomarker, that's pretty much all we have yeah. uh, at our disposal. I suppose with melatonin, that's um, mm-hmm. something that people, I think, need to consider, and I'm not sure whether it's considered a lot, is obviously, you know, we know that light will affect melatonin. So if, for example, somebody tests their melatonin and they've uh, been sitting in a room with lots of light and they've been sitting there for half an hour and then they collect the melatonin and then they do a post-assessment and the second time round they've been, it's been dark, the lights have been down, is that going to affect the melatonin levels? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So melatonin is pretty much low during daylight hours. And it starts to increase a couple of hours before um, nightfall, a couple of hours mm-hmm. before you actually start to wind down and go to bed. So, you know, if you're going to bed consistently at around nine, ten o'clock, for example, your level of melatonin is going to start to increase a couple of hours uh, before that. Um, your melatonin will not peak until you're well and truly asleep. Um, Mm -hmm. And currently your melatonin will peak somewhere around three or four in the morning. I suggest because it's uh, well, it's somewhere around three and four in the morning. And then as soon as you wake up, it's gone again. So uh, there is no point in making a comparison melatonin levels. If you, you know, as we are doing right now, sitting in a room in daylight Mm -hmm. with lights on, and um, uh, taking a sample and then taking a sample sometime at night and make that comparison. Well, the nighttime sample is going to be higher, but only if, you know, the lights are dim or there's no lights because the minute you have light, your melatonin levels yep. will, will, uh, will plummet again. Wow. All right. So they're things that people obviously need to consider. Yeah. Now, obviously, you can measure via blood, you can measure via saliva, you can measure via urine. Uh, Now you can also measure via hair. I know you do a a fair bit of hair testing too. So why would we choose one sample over another? How do clinicians kind of decide, yep, let's go with hair, let's go to saliva? What what do they measure and what's different about that? It really really depends on what you want to measure. Traditionally, I suppose, pathology type biomarkers have been measured from blood. And by and large, you know, um, if you go to your local GP, by and large, they're measured still out of blood. So if you wanted to get cortisol done, 
for, and, you know, there's only two reasons why you would get cortisol done through a GP. You know, if you have suspected Cushing's or suspected Addison's disease, I think Medicare doesn't cover it for much beyond that. Mm-hmm. You know, it would be a blood measurement. So why would you use blood versus that of saliva? Because we can also measure cortisol and many of the other hormones in saliva. Well, there's one difference between blood and saliva. When you're talking about hormones, and I'm not talking about all biomarkers here, if you if you have a protein biomarker, if you have a fairly large protein biomarker, you definitely consider blood for its measure. But mm-hmm. when you're looking at fairly small molecules like the steroid hormones, when you're looking at molecules that are hydrophobic in nature, that is fat-loving in nature, such as the steroid hormones, they are derived from cholesterol and mm-hmm. they are fat-soluble or hydrophobic. I would you know, certainly think of measuring them outside of the blood. Why? Because in blood, we have a large number of proteins that bind to the steroid hormones. And I'll give you an example of, you know, the hormones that we tend to measure in pathology, cortisol, estradiol, testosterone, progesterone. All of these steroid hormones do not circulate in what is known as a free and bioactive form. They circulate bound to specific binding proteins. In the case of cortisol, it circulates bound to CBG or corticosteroid binding globulin. In the case of testosterone and estradiol, they circulate bound to SHBG, which is sex hormone binding globulin. Mm -hmm. And the reason why they do that is to keep them in the high concentrations that we do find them or relatively high concentrations that we do find them in blood and to keep them solubilized in blood. Don't forget, these are hydrophobic chemicals that are in a hydrophilic environment, in watery environment. So they need to be solubilized. Mm-hmm. So one way you can solubilize them, one way you can keep them in the reservoir, which is the blood, is to bind them to a binding protein. 90 to 95% of the total amount of steroid hormone, i.e. cortisol, testosterone, estradiol that you have, is bound up. And the 5 or so percent is in the free form. And it is thought, and I'll put a caveat to that later on, but it is thought that the 5%, the free form, is the bioavailable and therefore the bioactive component. When you measure cortisol in blood, you are measuring the total amount of cortisol in blood, not just the 5%, which is the bioactive component. When you measure cortisol and estrogen and testosterone and progesterone in saliva, only the free hormone gets into saliva. So you're measuring the bioavailable and therefore the bioactive. Ah, So that's probably some of the reasoning behind the differences. So if you get a blood test and a saliva test, you might get discrepancy in the results. And that's because one's measuring total and the other one's measuring free. Yeah. 
So you can ask for a free index. So in order to get the free index, you need to first measure the total. Then you need to measure the capacity of the binding protein that is there. And from the capacity of the binding protein, there's an equation called the Coulomb's equation that you plug the numbers into and you will get the free component of the hormone. It's doing two measurements and then, you know, putting that into an equation to get what essentially you would get from saliva anyway. And saliva is a much easier measure. I certainly would not go to blood measurements if I'm doing any experiments whatsoever or any measurements with cortisol because, you know, there's an enormous number of people, including myself, who are needle phobic. And the minute I think about going to give blood, um, my cortisol level is going to be up anyway. (laughs) It's going to be a pointless measure. My opinion, whereas it's so much easier just to, you know to drool in a uh, in a tube with a bit of saliva that can be measured. So that would be the reason why you would measure out of saliva instead of blood. And as we've said before, you know if you're doing any form of treatment that requires topical supplementation, then again there's a number of studies showing that the concentration of those topical hormones can be measured in saliva, but uh, they're not detectable in, uh, in blood. Now, it could okay. be that they're not detectable, and I've read some uh, and heard some arguments saying that, you know, the red blood cells uh, absorb them, so forth and so on. I think what happens is that they're just simply absorbed by the binding proteins. Now, these binding proteins are fairly high affinity, But there's also a low affinity binding protein, and that's albumin. And, you know, 55% of the total protein content in your blood is albumin. And it can bind to these hormones, and it does so. Yes, it's low affinity, and therefore, you know, it's regarded as being a free form. But nonetheless, you know, albumin can bind to the hormones, and you may not be able to really uh, readily be able to measure them. So... You know, you could use urine. Um, If you're looking at any of the metabolites, you would definitely need to use urine. But again, from a simplicity point of view, saliva, saliva is the way to go. The only thing you need to watch out with saliva, and, you know, these are the pros and cons that I'll throw in here and there. The only thing that you need to watch out with saliva is the flow rate in some of the biomarkers that you measure, they will be flow rate dependent. Um, Things like your steroid hormones, they're not flow rate dependent at all. But if you're looking at larger, you know, protein biomarkers, which have a different route of entry into the salivary fluid, they are likely to be flow rate dependent. So you, you, you need to be careful with that. So, you know, blood, saliva, urine, and we also do quite a bit of hair analysis now. And hair is quite unique in all of these measures in that we can get a historical measurement from hair hormone analysis. Hair grows roughly one centimetre per month and hormones are deposited and they are trapped in the uh, matrix of the hair. And what we can do is 
we can extract them from the hair and we can measure them. Now we can extract the first centimetre, the second centimetre, the third centimetre. We can extract six centimetres, whatever is the paradigm that the client wishes and we can extract those hormones and measure them and we can say, okay, you know, two months ago, this was what your cortisol was doing. Twelve months ago, this is what your cortisol was doing. So that's part of the advantage of doing things in hair. The other advantage of doing things in hair, Adrian, is this. If I'm taking a measurement from blood, if I'm taking a measurement from saliva, I am getting the measure or the level of hormones at the time of sampling. So it's a one-off at the time of sampling. And they could be elevated or they could be decreased for whatever reason. And we won't go into that at this point in time, but for whatever reason, they could be elevated. Whereas in hair, we don't see those elevations because hormones are deposited continually into the hair matrix. So you get this averaging effect that goes on. So whereas we can pick up quite nicely a circadian pattern in cortisol in Mm -hmm. saliva, we can't pick that up at all in hair because, you know, we pick up all the highs, we pick up all the lows as an average, and we get an average average value of all of that. So it's just a chronic chronic measure. A, A chronic measure is one way of looking at them. Or an overall measure. You know, Mm -hmm. there's a study done back in September 2021, so not long ago, that that looked at uh, all these different measures from blood, saliva, urine, hair, and looked at the advantages and disadvantages of them and their reliability, and they were able to determine that chronic stress determination, uh, by far the the most reliable measure uh, resulted from... um, uh, hair cortisol analysis. Oh, so wow. it, it's quite a quite a good study to do. Now we mm-hmm. do, as I said, quite a bit of um, uh, hair work for researchers, um, but we also have a number of practitioners that have taken up looking at hair cortisol, uh, and that's the only one that we do with the practitioners at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. And that's because we've done. So many, we've done, you know, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of hair samples. So we've got quite a set of, you know, data from which we can draw our norms and therefore be able to uh, utilise hair cortisol uh, measurements. And they do, you know, they do bring up some (laughs) very nice data. We had a client from London who sent us six years' worth of hair and we were able to um, extract on a three-monthly basis for six years, we're able to extract and measure cortisol. And um, again, you know, someone from London, we don't know her, we have no idea of the clinical history, but we're mm-hmm. able to show and drive a nice graph of changes of, you know, and I think she had about three dips over the last six years that, or over the period of the six years that we measured. And we sent her the data and she wrote back to us, you know, and uh, said, I've got tears in my eyes because, you know, I've kept meticulous records of my symptomology because, I, you know, no one could diagnose me with anything. And certainly we didn't diagnose her with anything. We just, yeah. you know, helped, helped her see that whenever she had those symptoms, that there were dips in her cortisol level. So the three dips that we did find in her case, for example, coincided quite nicely 
with um, her symptomology, whatever that symptomology was for her. Um, wow. So that's the utility, I guess, of these measures. And the other utility of them is that, you know, hormones do get trapped in the hair matrix, so they're not going anywhere. They're not going to be clean. Um, yeah. So, you know, we can measure them quite nicely, quite easily. And we've had instances, uh, and I've had a, a couple of recent ones where, you know, we were able to measure very, very high levels. In fact, levels that were off the scale. So in one instance, they were way, way above the normal uh, reference range. In another instance, they were so high that we just could not, um, we just could not measure it. I mean, we could if we went and diluted, et cetera, et cetera, but there was no mm-hmm. point in doing that. It was just very, very high. And these were both individuals. Well, one was taking topical pregnenolone, for example, uh, which is converted to progesterone as well as taking topical progesterone because her levels were very, very low. And that was very easy to measure. But the one that I really liked was um, an individual who, for all intents and purposes, was trying to fall pregnant. And um, without giving too much away, uh, she couldn't. And when we measured her progesterone, it was through the roof. And when I reported that, the clinician said, "No, no, you've got you've got it wrong. She's not on a supplement. She's you know not on anything. In fact, she's trying to fall pregnant." So we redid it. We always run controls, and you know everyone else that was in that same run was quite normal. And we redid it and got exactly the same result. Two weeks later, it ends up that her husband, who was going well, trying to slow down his hair loss was on a progesterone cream. So ah, wow. he's taking the progesterone cream and she's getting a dose because every time he touched <laughs> and she touched, she got a dose. And, you know, if he took it at night and uh, he's lying and she's lying next to him, she's getting a dose. No wonder. Wow. It's amazing. Pregnant. Now, you know, <laughs> if we did saliva and we didn't do saliva on her, but if we did saliva, then we wouldn't pick up those huge levels because it's being continually cleared. So that's the utility of the yeah. the hair. If you're bald, then we don't uh, we don't have that option. <laughs> yeah, it's not an option. <laughs> wow. So so really, then I mean, um, we've uh, I mean, we could just keep going for a long time. And there's lots of questions I have in my head that I'd like to ask you, but obviously we're just running out of time. But uh, just to kind of summarise, it looks like then basically you've got a, a number of different options that practitioners could look at in terms of assessing if somebody's coming in with depression or anxiety or, or, or sleep-related problems. Um, so there needs to be firstly the question that they need to ask themselves is which markers do I think may be useful? Is it cortisol? Is it BDNF? Is it um, inflammatory markers? Is it oxidative stress markers? And that's where um, I suppose the clinical assessment can help guide the clinician to go, okay, which what do I think might be contributing to some of the symptoms? So I think maybe there's an inflammatory role here and then you can obviously then choose your inflammatory type markers. So you've got that. Absolutely. Then you've got to make a decision around which sample do I use? Do I use hair? Do I use saliva? Do I use blood? Do I use urine? And then you've also mentioned that things like timing and light, and I suspect things like exercise and the food we eat and whether you brush your teeth or whether you wash your hair and colour your hair and all those things would probably affect some of the results too. They're all things that need to be considered. Am I correct in that in saying that too? 
Absolutely. So the timing, uh, you know, a lot of these things do have circadian patterns, so the timing is important. You know, exercise is a form of stressor, and obviously mm-hmm. we need to avoid exercise when we're when we're looking at providing samples. Alcohol is a big no-no, so you know, yep. try avoid drinking alcohol for you know twelve-hour period or so before you provide a sample. The longer, the better, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, the same with smoking, but not so much. So you don't need to stop smoking for 12 hours. Generally, if you stop smoking for a couple of hours and provide a saliva, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, eating is a big one. So we ask that yep. uh, people don't eat for an hour at least before they provide a sample. And if you are mm-hmm. going to eat, try and keep it low GI because high sugary foods or high glycemic index foods can really mess around with your glucose levels, your insulin levels, which then can affect your neurotransmitter levels, affect your cortisol level, for example. So we need to think about all that. With hair, there's not a lot that affects the level of cortisol or testosterone estradiol in here so washing it mm-hmm. dyeing it makes very little difference even if okay. you've got topical hormones that you put on the outside because we remove all of that before we extract uh, from okay. here anyway so you know it tends to be fairly good measure these things are very very stable so when you look at hormones in saliva cortisol testosterone estradiol they tend to be fairly stable there's not a lot that can happen to them Mm. in saliva in fact when you look at the level of cortisol in saliva if i get a sample today and i leave it on the bench for two weeks and remeasure it there'll be no change in the level of cortisol at all Uh, so it's very very stable in hair, obviously, they're stable for years and years and years. But we do ask, as you know, always we do ask that people freeze them before they send them to us. If you're doing melatonin, obviously, light exposures, uh, light exposure is very, very important for that. So I think, you know, clinicians need to have an appreciation for all of these things. And, you know, you, you may not... Uh, you may not know the ins and outs and the intricacies of all of this. And I think this is where clinicians, researchers, you know, can pick up the phone and call people like myself mm-hmm. and have a chat. I'm looking at this patient or I'm looking at this study that I want to conduct. Um, what are some mm-hmm. of the, the pitfalls? What are the, some of the things that I need to do? And what are some of the things I need to avoid? So yep. you need to be aware of all of these things. And it's, it's, it's only a matter of chatting with Whichever laboratory you choose to do your work, if you're doing research, if you do, you know, if you're a clinician, um, again, talk to the laboratory that you choose to do the work. And I, I know I've used you. I mean, I've certainly signed, and you've done a lot of testing for me in in our our studies. So, when uh, you know, I often pick up the phone and have a conversation with you to help yeah. me. Absolutely, uh, I come up with ideas around the intricacies of testing. So, I'd certainly encourage. Um, practitioners if they're interested in doing testing and they're not quite sure 
um, which tests and how to do it um, to pick up the phone and, and to contact obviously the laboratory and certainly contact you. And we've run out of time. I could keep going. Uh, I think, you yeah, know, this is a, a, a couple of days course really that uh, that could really be done for people. So, um, so I mean, certainly, Simon, thank you very much for coming on the show today and, and really just taking us through the various pathology tested options that we have at a disposal to help assess and I suppose also with our treatment of mental health problems such as anxiety and depression and, and sleep problems. My, and obviously, Yep, my, my pleasure. My pleasure, Adrian. Yeah. And uh, I think we're, we're in an exciting stage. We're at the early stages of biomeasurements for mental health, but certainly um, look out in the future for... Um, you know, for BDNF, look out in the future for melondialdehyde and um, interleukin six measurements in terms of in terms of measuring chromogranin A is some something else that we haven't talked about, but we'll we won't add anything more to what we have yeah. talked about. Maybe or another podcast. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, certainly we we so often rely on our patient's symptoms, but our conversations today, we can see that there's a wide range of biomarkers that we could test to help, you know, gain further insights about what's happening from a biochemical level. So, uh, you know, I think, you, you know, for a lot of the information that you provided us, there's lots of questions that practitioners will have, but I, I hopefully, you know, they've taken something away and they've understand that, the potential benefits, but also the potential pitfalls yeah. and, and uh, cautions and, and that they need to really consider when doing testing. So, so thank you yeah, very much, Simon. absolutely. And, you know, if I can just add, Adrian, that, you know, um, when, when, when you look through various laboratories' websites and, you know, they don't offer a certain test that you like, um, you know, again, um, we're only too happy to... To sort of oblige and you know I've, I've had clinicians call me and say look I really want to measure this what do you think um, and you know we've 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 done enough measurement of different sorts of biomarkers that we have sufficient data um, that you know we can look at some degree of normative data that we can compare the general mm-hmm. population um, but as a clinician, we cannot replace your clinical judgment of, you know, of what you see in your patients. We can only aid in that. And, um, you know, if there's anything you guys out there would like to measure that isn't on offer, um, you know, most labs are very, uh, very happy to oblige, including mine. So. Brilliant. Thanks, Simon. Well, thank you everyone for listening today. Uh, Don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. I'm Dr. Adrian Lopresti and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hi, this is Dr. Damien Christoph. Join us on FX Medicine next week, where I'll be talking to Dr. Carlo Ronaldo about balance, the vestibular system, neuro rehab, and neuroplasticity. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media to make sure you never miss an episode.